0: Hello.
1: Sanctified us by His commandments, and has commanded us to be a light to the nations, and has given us Yeshua the Messiah,
0: the light of the world. Amen.
2: Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Eloheinu Melech Olam Borei Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. And now the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz We give thanks to God for bread Our voices rise in song together As our joyful prayer is said Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. All of that. Now, husbands, if you will bless your wives. Dear Heavenly Father. I thank you lord for the wonderful wife that you've given me and father we thank you and we pour out a blessing upon all the wives on this sabbath day i pray that you bless her strengthen her and encourage her as she rises in the night to see about the ways of the household and i pray that you strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children father i pray that you pour out your very best blessing upon her and that you would encourage her in everything that she does let her know how worthy of praise and honor that she is and, Father, I confess with all of my heart that I love her, and I thank you, Lord, for her. We also bless all of the widows and orphans, those without a father or a husband at this time as well. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. 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 All right, now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. 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 Let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. 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 Shabbat shalom.
0: Shabbat
1: shalom. 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 Please join us for the Barhu, the call to worship.
3: Barhu et Aronai hamvorach. Baruch hamvorach leolam vaed.
1: Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord, who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha.
3: Michamocha ba'elim madonai Michamocha nedar ba'kodesh. No, he o Oh, say, oh, who is like you. Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord. Who is like you, O Lord? Amen. And now
1: the blessing of Messiah. Barucha ta'aranai, elohinu melecha'olam, asherna tanlanu et derach ha'yeshua ba'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the vishamru. Vishamru vene Yisrael et Hashabat. La asot et Hashabat la doratan berit olam. Bene ovayan vene Yisrael otile leolam. Kesheshet yamin asa Aronai. Et hashemayim va et hararets, uvayom hashvii shvat Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem, for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema
3: Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kevod me'achuto le'olam Yeshua Hamashiach, Hu Adonai, Hero Israel, the Lord is our
1: God, the Lord is One. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the hafta, be hafta et aronai elohecha, bechol lavavcha uvchol nafshecha uvchol meyodecha, v'ha'yu. Ha devarim ha alea sher anochi, mitzavcha, hayom, al levavacha. Vashinantam levanecha, vilebartabam, veshiftacha, bebetrecha, uvlechtecha, viderech, uvshuchbecha, uvkumicha. Ukshartam, leot Al alyadecha, vahayula totafot, benanecha. Uktaftam, almezuzot, betecha, uvisharecha. Altogether. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall speak of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
0: It's so hard to see
3: Torah, Torah, Baruch Shem Tov. Torah, Torah, Le'Amol Yisrael, Be'Kdu Shabbat.
4: Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast here at Benai Shalom. Um this is an interesting Sabbath. It's uh, We call it a Sabbath of new beginnings uh, because our Torah portion is called Shemini, which actually means eight. But there's a very uh, strong thematic uh, meaning behind the number eight in the Bible that has to do with new beginnings. And uh, so our portion starts out, and now on the eighth day, and the, obviously, saying it that way, that means there was a process of something going on, and they were counting the days, and they come to the eighth day. So, what is the process that was going on? Well, uh, if you remember in the previous portions of Leviticus, the previous two Sabbaths, we've been receiving instructions. Um, uh, about certain sacrifices, how the temple's to be used, how the things are supposed to be done by the priest. And now we come to the moment where we're down to the reality of these things are now happening, and this is these are the events that took place. And then we come down to the eighth day of the dedication of the altar that's in the tabernacle. This is a very significant day because it's now the first day of a number of things that are now common to us that are part of the tabernacle and the priestly service. Let me just read you a quick review of on this day for um, Sabbath, this Shemini that we have, what was at the beginning. This, was, this is marking, are you ready for this? This is marking the first day of creation, It's marking the first day of the princes of Israel coming and making their gifts to the Lord. And in Numbers chapter 7, you'll see a whole section on that. It's the first day that the priesthood is now operating, because this is the same day that the ordination of Aaron and his sons become the Levitical priests. It's the first day of what we call the divine service, or the temple service— the daily offering, this is the first day that that was taking place in the tabernacle. It's the first day that we see God descending as fire down in the midst of the people. We saw Him come down on the mountain, but we were separate from the people. But now the fire comes down to in the presence of the people at the tabernacle. It's the first day of the eating of sacrifices, you know, the gifts that were put to the altar. It's the first day of the divine presence of God being in the midst of the people. Now, Moses used to go up, and he was in the divine presence. Now the divine presence has come down to be part of us. It's the first day that Aaron the high priest ever spoke the blessing on all of the people. First day that ever happened. It's the first day that God now has said, no one is going to be setting up altars in other places to me or anyone else. All altar work now is to come to this tabernacle and to be done at this altar. Nobody's to set up any more altars on their own, offer sacrifice to me. You all come here and do your business with me here. And interestingly enough, it was also the new moon. It was the first day of the month. A lot of incredible first things are taking place at this. This was a a joyous day, an incredible day, but something tragically happened after all of these wonderful things were taking place and the glory of the Lord appeared unto the children of Israel and Moses by the fire coming down onto the altar and consuming the sacrifices that God had said to set up for that. Then two of Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu, somehow got it in their head that they were going to, I guess, help God. They were going to join in in this glorious day, and they were going to do so by taking their censers. They were going to bring some fire to the altar. And And the Scripture says they were offering strange fire. And what happened was that fire came out from the altar and killed them instantly. Aaron lost his two sons. They were priests. They, it was their ordination day, and they died. Now, what follows after that story is all of a sudden there's an exhortation that talks about um, when you come before the Lord, don't come before the Lord having consumed alcoholic beverages, that you have to be sober when you come before the Lord. You can't come drunk. And the inference if that's the correct uh, thing here, implication, inference, whatever, um, is that they apparently were inebriated when they came to do this, and God didn't put up with that. And so we have this very glorious and yet very tragic day that's all taking place at the same time. That's what our Torah portion is uh, dealing with. The uh, What follows... In beginning in chapter 11, the first 10 chapters of Leviticus have all been to do deal with the tabernacle service, the temple service, and so forth. But all of a sudden, in chapter 11, the book of Hebrews is now going to shift to a different topic. The topic it's going to shift to is one of personal holiness. It's about how we treat us, how we behave uh, within us before it. And the first thing it addresses is the whole subject of kosher, clean and unclean foods. And God specifically says you are not to consume and bring into you these unclean things. He just got through explaining what is appropriate to be brought to the tabernacle and what's not appropriate to be done. Now he talks about what is appropriate and not appropriate to come into you. Um, We have this model that is for us, and we've spoken of it many, many times in the construction of the tabernacle, as well as it's repeated in the New Testament, that we're the temple of God. That as a result of God filling us with His Spirit, His presence, that He's done the operation without hands, we have a circumcised heart, and that we should treat our bodies, us, as the temple of God. And when it's saying that, when we say that, whether we realize it or not, we're going back to this portion of Leviticus about don't put unclean things inside the temple of God. Now, I know lots of Christian friends, they love to talk about we're the temple of God and you can't smoke or you can't drink alcoholic beverages. But the Bible specifically describes things that people call food and says, don't put those in there. I've never quite understood uh, some of my good Christian brethren who want to quote that we're the temple of God uh, thinking when they're opposed to someone who is smoking or drinking, but they have have no, no problem whatsoever with eating swine's flesh and cockroaches from the sea. They don't have any problem with that at all. When smoking is not mentioned in the Bible... Um, alcohol is mentioned, but it says don't go to drunkenness, and it, it lists very explicitly in Leviticus chapter 11 what is supposed to be called food and what is not to be called food. So that's what our Torah portion is about. So it brings us to... So what is the Hof portion that goes with this? What momentous event do we have described in Scripture that would even begin to compare at all with what this Torah portion is about. Well, to do that, we go to 2 Samuel, chapter 6. In 2 Samuel, in chapter 6, this is about King David and his desire to um, establish the dwelling place of God in Jerusalem to build the temple, the permanent temple. And uh, and one of the items that would be necessary for that to happen is we need the Ark of the Covenant that was carried by the Levitical priests through the wilderness, came into the Holy Land, was used by Joshua to help conquer the land. We need the Ark of the Covenant so it can be brought to Jerusalem so it can be get ready to be installed in the temple that David wants to build. Now as you all know, David was not permitted to build the temple. Uh, The son of David, Solomon, is the one who was permitted to do it. However, David was permitted to assemble all of the elements that would be used to build the uh, temple, as well as all the furnishings and the priestly things of the temple service to be brought and assembled, ready to be installed in the New temple, and one of the items that David wanted to get was the Ark of the Covenant, the ark that contained the two tablets uh, that, that um, God wrote on that Moses brought up there for him, and uh, which had the mercy seat, the cherubim above, and so forth and it was located in the land it had been captured by the Philistines, but he knew where it was at, and so David is going to go get the Ark of the Covenant. He's going to be bringing it to Jerusalem to get ready to assemble it uh, to be part of the future temple to be built in Jerusalem. So our portion begins in 2 Samuel 6 that is explaining that process. And let me go ahead and just start reading uh, from verse 4 uh, of that, although the passage begins at verse 1. So they brought uh, it with the ark of God from the house of um, Ahinadav, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Now, this particular man who had had it had two sons, and they had taken responsibility for protecting the ark of the covenant. And so when it came time to move it, they got a new cart uh, so they could transport it. They're not Levites to carry it by the poles. They got a cart, and they put it on that. And one of the sons is at the front of this cart being pulled by oxen that has the ark, and one of the other sons is toward the rear, protecting the rear of it, and way out front is King David, and there's musicians, and all. there's a whole entourage welcoming and bringing the ark of the covenant on its trip toward Jerusalem to be assembled and prepared to go into the temple that will be ultimately built. Along the way, As we're on the path, apparently one of the oxen stumbled and the cart began to tip. And the son, Uzzah, who was at the back, he reached up with his hand and he put it on the Ark of the Covenant. We think to help leverage it so it wouldn't fall, it wouldn't wouldn't tumble off of the cart. The moment he put his hand up there... He died, and the Lord was kind of upset with the. Or excuse me, David was kind of upset with the Lord about that because there was the Lord broke. This is the language. The Lord broke through, and and killed Uzzah. And they're dealing with the reaction to what had transpired. In fact, what actually happened was they didn't take it any further in their journey. They, they brought it to a resting place. It remained there for some three months before they went and can't, continued on with the journey. So the comparison of this Hoftor teaching in 2 Samuel 6, as compared to Shemini, the Torah portion, is the following. Whereas this was a great and glorious day of the starting of the tabernacle, Um, Nadav and Avihu died on that day. Here's a great and glorious thing taking place. The Ark of the Covenant is coming to the city of Jerusalem. It's going to be future installed. And yet someone who's trying to help it, trying to do something good intentions, dies. And that's the comparison of why we have this. But our Hoftor portion goes on to tell us some other things about King David on this journey to bring the Ark of the Covenant and so forth. As I mentioned to you before, as a result of the death of Yuza, the Ark was it didn't make the journey further into Jerusalem. It was maintained and kept at a near home by this one particular man and his family, and the testimony is that once the ark was there under the protection of that particular house that god prospered that house tremendously the blessings just fell on that house and on that family in fact so much for that it was being reported throughout the whole land of israel how incredible the blessings were uh, up on their house well guess what there was kind of an interest in some of the children of Israel can we get the ark to come visit me. And David knew at that point he's got to take control. He's got to do something. So that's when he said I got to go get the ark and we got to get it on into Jerusalem. We got otherwise this thing is going to be handed around all over the place and people are going to get killed and and they think they're going to get wild blessings and we 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 got to get this thing under control. So he now dispatches for the um, Ark, the Covenant, to now be brought into Jerusalem. And to do so, he sets up this entourage again. People worshiping and dancing before the Lord and so forth. And David himself got out there in front of the Ark and started dancing and rejoicing as the Ark was coming forth. Uh, There's a very famous Messianic song. I'm sure you've sang it if you've been in any Messianic assembly. I will dance as David danced, and that song is about this tour portion. It's about when the Ark of the Covenant was coming forth, that David danced, apparently in a very dramatic fashion, um, uninhibited, uh, before the Lord, and apparently he wasn't that well clad. Now, we don't know that was just a loincloth but it it was a skimpy attire and certainly not a kingly attire Um, and and uh, apparently he put something on that would give him the maximum freedom to dance and i don't know if you know this but you know when you see uh, uh, professional dancers they wear usually very tight fitting clothes very elastic type body forming clothes and and they dance and it gives them freedom to dance. But most of us in the audience, when we observe it, um, especially ladies that are clad like that way, it's form-fitting, and, and we, some of us have a little bit of a twinge about, you know, I'm not so sure that that's very modest, um, the way they're dancing, and I'm not sure that's very modest, what they're wearing. Well, that same thing happened when King David came dancing and bringing the Ark of the Covenant, his wife that had been given to him by King Solomon, she's observing this. And after all the celebrations are over with and taken place, then King David comes in and she scorns him, for doing something beneath his stately position being the king of Israel, and that he shouldn't have been wearing those clothes, and maybe he shouldn't have been dancing in that way so that all the other handmaids of the kingdom would be looking upon him in an inappropriate way. And, of course, stepping back from all of this, We all know why King David did what he did. We have a lot of evidence um, from King David, the testimony of his life. In fact, King David is considered to be the greatest king of Israel short of the Messiah himself. And his enthusiasm for God, his enthusiasm for the Scripture, his enthusiasm to follow the Lord is magnificent. This is the man as a young boy that took out Goliath. This is the man that defeated the Philistines. This is the man that survived King Saul when he wanted to harm him. Um, And this is the man who utterly loved the Lord loved the Torah, he wrote his own copy of the Torah, he wrote the 119th Psalm, he was a musician, he loved to worship, and boy did he want to help build that temple for all of Israel and its future. And he had a sense of the things that he was doing had future implications. And he was doing his utmost for the benefit of the nation and the people It wasn't just about him. You know, the testimony that's given of King David is, this is the man that sought the very heart of God. But there are others sitting back, like his wife, um, uh, questioning whether what he did was really appropriate. How exuberant can you be and it still be proper and not improper if you're exuberant toward the Lord? Uh, How worshipful can you be Um, and it still be appropriate and not uh, offend anybody else? You know, the fact of the matter is, and this is what's taught here is, that uh, you should do it to the very maximum that you can possibly do as long as it's true and genuine from your heart. And with regard to those who would scorn you that they don't like what you're doing or they don't think it's appropriate what you're doing, um, they're not going to win the day. The Lord is not going to be on their side agreeing with them. The Lord is going to be on the side of the person who is genuine with their heart and came forth with a full heart to serve him and worship him. That's who the Lord's going to stand with. Um, It's not just about dancing before the Lord. It's not just about uh, those things. If a person believes strongly in their heart that their expressions, whether it be in speech and behavior, whatever, that they are being enthusiastic for the Lord they really should not incur this, the scorn of any other believers. That's their expression of their heart toward God. You know, God has given us a multitude of different spiritual gifts. Part of those are to be used to the benefit of the kingdom and do the work of the service to God. And there's diversity in those gifts. And... We human beings, if we see something that's different from what we like to do, we, our first inclination is to say, that, oh, there's something wrong with that. Why do we have such diversity within the Messianic movement? For that matter, diversity within Protestant Christianity, diversity within the Catholic Church, diversity with all religious groups, none of them are completely locked in all at one thing. How is that we have that? Because we're dealing with human beings. And we're mortals, and we're finite creatures, and we're struggling to try to figure out how can we worship and how can we present our best foot forward, if you will, toward our, our love of God. And one guy feels that that's what he should do to express his love of God. Another guy, he he feels like doing something differently toward his love of God. And then we got this other guy over here. He's a very honorable man. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a hero amongst us. And he decides to dance half naked before God while singing and dancing in erratic fashion of expressing his love of God. I think we ought to... Leave that alone. I think that when I have that twinge of a thought, well, that's different for me, and I, I wouldn't necessarily do that, we just leave it alone. I'm not that person. That person's not me. And by the way, God knows who all of us are, and He knows what's on our heart. He can see inside our hearts. He knows where our hearts are really at. But one of the things we've also learned about the Lord, and it's in this lesson, both cases. Um, In all of that desire to come before the Lord, use the Lord's safe uh, boundaries and uh, honor his boundaries that he gives. Because if you get too close, if you break through, you begin to usurp the Lord, you begin to, I'm going to put my hand on the holiest thing that's walking around here on the earth and I'm an unholy person, these results are not going to be what you thought they were going to be. You will have gone too close. You will have gone too far, and you will suffer the consequences for it. God is a holy God. We are not holy. Um, Over here in the wall in the building, there's a plug, electrical plug, electricity is a wonderful thing works great um we use it i'm here i i think electricity is so great that i'm going to stick my tongue in that socket to to kiss it what do you think is going to happen to me i can't get that close to that i can use it i can be a part of it and so forth but if i do that i will suffer incredible consequences and by the way when Yuzah put his hand on the ark, and when Nadav and Avihu brought that fire against the altar, they might as well have stuck their tongue in an electrical plug. Same result. Instantly died. The God we serve is a holy God. He set boundaries around himself so we're not harmed and still have the benefit of him. And when people want to express their great love toward God, we should not be acting as judges and setting boundaries for God. God already has set his boundaries for what is acceptable to him, and we should not be going up and say, well, God, you need to set up a boundary that King David cannot dance in front of you half naked. He doesn't have that boundary. God didn't set up that boundary. We should leave that alone. There's a great commandment I'm going to conclude with, and it says not to move the ancient boundary markers. Let them remain where they're at. God has set a series of boundary markers around him. He has set um, uh, precautions before us to not cross those boundaries, but He's also permitted a way for us to come before Him. And there's a protocol to that, and there's a proper way to do that, and so that we're not harmed. And, and that's the whole process. Follow His rules. He sets the house rules. Follow His rules. Everything will work great. And that's what we're trying to learn how to do. We can also know that you can make a mistake, and if you cross one of those boundaries, it's not good for you. Respect them. Don't move them. Don't try to tell God how to set up the temple and run it differently than the way He wants. Don't tell the priesthood how to do it differently. They were charged with the responsibility to do it, and so forth. And When an individual believer has decided, I want to worship the Lord in this way, I want to express my faith in this way, don't set up boundaries for them that that keeps them from doing that. You don't have that authority. God has set the proper boundaries. That's a kind of a simple lesson uh, for us. And from now on out in the Torah portion, we're going to learn a lot of details about things that God wants to set up for us so that we can be holy participants to be a part of His holy place. So that's our portion for this week. Shabbat Shalom to all of you, and I hope you have a new good next week.
2: Shalom. If you would, please now turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, to chapter 5, where our Brit How to Shop portion will begin for this week. And as you open the scripture, let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity once again to dig into your Word and your instruction. Father, we know that you will make your Word come alive and be powerful for us uh, each and every time that we crack open our Bibles as we read uh, the words and the instructions. And so, Father, I pray that this Sabbath would be no different as we continue to study your Torah, your instructions, your commandments for us and that we would be enlightened by all the testimony of all the words of uh, not only the Torah, but also the New Testament writers as well. And Father, I pray that you would just pour out a special blessing upon us on this Sabbath as we open your scripture once again. We love you, bless you, and thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. So our Torah portion this week, entitled Shemini, meaning eighth, Um, we've already uh, looked at the Torah portion and what the content was, and so just a quick reminder of that. This is the time in which the priestly ministry began after the consecration of Aaron and his sons to be priests and to serve in the tabernacle, and we see in uh, Leviticus chapter 9, that uh, the completion of that consecration has happened, and now it's time to begin that ministry. But wouldn't you know, in uh, in Leviticus chapter 10, we have the tragic circumstances by which Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they uh, bring to the Lord profane fire, which the Lord did not call for, was not accepted, and that there is the uh, miraculous and instantaneous death of the sons, of Aaron as a result of this mistake, as a result of this sin. And this is obviously one of those more impactful stories, these, something that's sad or tragic, that there's a lot of things that we can learn from and draw from That uh, for, for us to learn. How do we remain holy? How do we ensure that something like this doesn't happen? Make sure that we keep ourselves pure and holy and to never give the Lord a reason for Him to strike us dead where we stand. We have several examples of that in the Scripture, hence the reason why we are turning uh, in our Scripture to Acts chapter 5, where we have a parallel story of another two people that are struck dead miraculously and spectacularly because of a sin and a mistake. Here in the book of Acts, here in the, um, in the early formation of the church, in the early formation of the apostles going about making new believers by teaching everything that Yeshua taught, they join together and they form uh, groups and, they, and, and many people come into the faith even after the resurrection and the ascension of the Messiah. And at the end of Acts chapter 4, we have an agreement that's being, that's being made here in which uh, Peter and some of the other apostles, That there, there's this agreement that where all of the multitude of people who believe are in one, with one heart and with one soul. In fact, I'm going to back up a couple of verses into chapter 4 of Acts where it says this, describing this multitude of people in the early church that is joining together. It says Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither did any one say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of, of the Lord Yeshua. And great grace was upon them all, nor was there anyone among them who lacked for all who were possessors of lands or houses, sold them, and brought the proceeds of the, those things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. This is where they were forming a community that we, we were going to, they were consecrating themselves, so to speak. From the rest of the world, from the interactions that each man with their own possessions could choose to live their life as they so desired to be. But they came to an agreement with the apostles to join together into this community to sell all their lands, sell all their possessions, and they're going to join together in one accord. In one group, they're going to give all the, the, the money and the, the possessions and all the everything of value to the apostles, and everyone was going to have equal share. Everyone was going to come together. Now, this is one of those examples of like, say, you might have heard of a kibbutz in the land of Israel. In which communities can come together and can create what is best described as micro-socialism or micro-communism. In which a community can come to this agreement, follow the rules, the the, the, um, statutes of the uh, community, and everyone works to the benefit of the community. Nobody truly is risen up greater than the other. Usually there is some form of leadership, though, that is you have to have a righteous leader who would distribute everything equally and proportionally to those in need. And when you came and you submitted yourself to such a community, that then you followed the rules and the, of, and the procedures of what it is to be in the community. You break the rules, you get kicked out of the community. This is what they were forming and building here in these first couple of chapters of Acts. Now, in chapter 5, though, however, we have another part of the story that continues on. It says this, But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? "...to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself while it remained. Was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God." Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. "...so great fear came upon all those who heard these things." And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out then immediately she fell down at her feet, at his feet, and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying out her, carried her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. This is the very interesting passage of scripture that has taken place. It's one that's maybe not even. It's not brought up as anybody's ever, ever, uh, if you ask somebody what their favorite Bible story is, this is not one that comes up very often. As far as the tragedy that befell these two, this husband and this wife, who were there a part of the early community, the early church of what the apostles were doing and what they were building in the wake of the ascension of the Messiah. It's something for us to learn, and and in all of these cases, anytime that we have a situation in which there is a sinner that is pointed out for us in the Scripture, it is for us and for our admonition, for our benefit, to learn what they did so as to not repeat the same mistake. And in the case, and so obviously bringing this up for this week's Torah portion, there's a parallel to the two sons of Aaron dropping dead because they brought a profane fire. They brought something to the Lord that was not supposed to be brought. However, here in the book of Acts, what we instead have is we have something that was not brought before the Lord that should have been brought. And what it is in all of these cases is that we are to not test the Lord with what he knows, to test the spirit of the Lord, we might think that we have arrived in some way, form or fashion. If we find ourselves either in a believing community or working uh, with fellow brethren, such as the case of the sons of Aaron, when you're being when they were being consecrated in the tabernacle, they probably thought, It's like, man, we we got a really special task, a special job. We've been called to be priests to the Lord. And nobody can take that away from us. Nothing, uh, they, they they probably had this feeling like at that point they could do no wrong. Called by God, by name, to serve in the tabernacle. So they could do no wrong. So what is well understood with Nadab and Abihu is that they might have had a little bit too much to drink. They thought, man, we're going, we're worshiping the Lord. We've been sitting, you know, consecrating ourselves for seven days. It's now the eighth day. It's time to begin our work, begin our ministry. And we've arrived. So we can do, eh, maybe we can decide to do something a little bit different. or We're going to offer this fire before the Lord, whatever the, uh, it's believed that this might have been an incense offering that was done in the sanctuary or that they had stepped in to uh, give that, That incense offering, when specifically in Torah, it says that was Aaron's job to do. So any sort of bringing of fire to the golden altar that was not done by Aaron could have been considered strange fire as well. There's lots of different details as to why that offering was considered uh, strange or foreign to God and not prescribed. Needless to say, it was not supposed to be there. And that any sort of thought in their mind that perhaps they might be able to get away with something because they've arrived was obviously met with great tragedy and great correction, proving that that was not supposed to be the case. Here, Ananias and Sapphira, they felt the same way in the sense that it's like everybody was selling their land, selling their possessions, but they seri- they had a greed issue with this idea of they sold their land for this giant amount of money. And you're like, you know what? Let's pocket that. And when we though who you have come into an agreement with the community that we're going to give it all and have it all be distributed equally to everyone, we're going to hold back and we're going to stash a little, a little for ourselves. And then when we go to bring it to them, we're going to say that's how much it sold for when obviously it was the Spirit of the Lord that came into Peter that pointed out that they truly had lied to test, to test the Lord, test the Holy Spirit in the sense of what they spoke and what they had agreed to do. And it's fascinating that they both, there, there's this double witness, this double evidence of the fact that first Ananias, he spoke of these things, he lied to the Holy Spirit, lied to Peter, and that it shows in, in Peter's uh, uh, chastising him for the fact that he's saying Satan has filled your heart and you're trying to lie to the Holy Spirit. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to us. You're lying to God and you're trying to test the Lord. He falls down dead three hours later, not knowing that her husband had died. Sapphira, Sapphira comes in and she says the exact same thing and, and, and says and lies again. And both of them stand as an example as to not testing the Lord even though you think, hey, we've been welcomed into this community, There's not, they're not going to kick us out of the community. What about the entire idea or concept that everybody in the community was going to be taken care of? Everybody was going to get an equal share. They were, I mean, you're getting a part of the, with the land that other people sold. And the other people sold. And so, like every, we, when it's all said and done, when everything all comes and equals out, you might be ending up with something pretty close to what, you're, what you already were going to have if you kept your entire possession it's maybe understood or it's thought or it's uh, hypothesized that perhaps they were of the richest of the community, that their land was more valuable than anyone else's in the community. Otherwise, why would they hold something back? Why would they, why would they want to keep something? Because it's almost they would have thought that maybe the, the full price of their land and their possessions was greater than everybody else's, so they stood to lose the most. It's possible. If, you know, if, if that's the case, then perhaps one could sort of understand how they arrived at that conclusion. Now, if they weren't, that is even worse for them. If they actually stood to collect, you know, equal amount of what they tried to keep and what they tried to, to, to hold for themselves, then they simply were putting God to the test. They really were, because it wouldn't have been even to their benefit. So we don't know some of those details. But needless to say, we who read these stories later after the fact need to take to heart and to learn how to not try to test the Lord, not uh, lie to the Holy Spirit, and that it's for our benefit to not test the Lord in the same way. If you find yourself in a community where you have come to an agreement with somebody or agreed to serve the Lord together, yet you think you're going to hold something back or stash something away, and it's like, well, maybe nobody else knows, and so you might think you could get away with it, but the Lord sees all. The Lord is the one who caused their death since it happened immediately. They fell down to the ground and breathed their last breath. A a, um, miraculous, a a supernatural death that occurs here that uh, clearly it's the Lord's judgment that was upon him. It's not that the apostles killed them or sent them away out of the community. Judgment came from the Lord. And that's the thing we have to remember is that in all cases, we serve a God that judgment can come from Him. In fact, that actually is the thing that causes a lot of hesitation in people about believing in God. They don't want to believe in a God that enacts judgment. (laughs) Okay, then these are the same people that probably would say they they want a set of parents that never punish them when they do wrong. Never teaches somebody a lesson when they need to be taught a lesson. We just want everything to be easy, right? We don't want a God that would judge us for doing wrong. Well, no, that's what a good parent would do. That's what a good heavenly father would do. That's what God, in the process of teaching His people, will do so that we learn to obey Him. If everything was all good and hunky-dory and everything was, was, was great for all of us by believing in God, well, then nobody would believe in God and none of us would be, the better, be better for believing in God and following the Lord. If there was not punishment for us to learn from for us to, to learn, to grow, to be better individuals. We, have to, we follow a God who is just and who does enact judgment when somebody lies to the Holy Spirit, does wrong, uh, blaspheming, blasphemes the Lord. We must always be mindful never to do that. In fact, I'm reminded of the sin that is considered the unpardon, unpardonable sin, according to the Gospels, is blaspheming the Holy Spirit which you could, you know, extrapolate out all kinds of other ways. How do you do that? Would lying to God or lying about God be equivalent to that? Maybe. We have to be very mindful and we need to learn these things. Turn with me to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, where we have sort of the wrap-up of this whole story, and this also connects back to our Torah portion as well. When the sons of Aaron died, Aaron, you know, you can only imagine what the emotions of Aaron might have been at that time. And then Moses, you know, he speaks a couple of words and, and of instruction to him about being holy, separate. that we serve a God that separates the clean and the unclean, the holy and the profane, and talking about needing the need of being sober uh, in all the things that they, that they do in the service of the tabernacle. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, Starting at verse 13, it says this, Therefore, gird up your loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you in the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy." This is the, the words and the instruction as to why Aaron's sons died. is because they did not separate the holy and the profane. They brought profane fire where only holy fire was meant to go. And that this is the continuing instruction, the, the thing for us to learn. And where it says, be sober. Like I said, it's assumed and hypothesized that Nadab and Abihu had had a little bit too much to drink. Because one of the first instructions immediately after this event happened that said that in the service of the tabernacle, the priests are not to drink wine or strong drink or alcohol in the service of the tabernacle, lest they commit some sin similar to Nadab and Abihu. So, that whole idea of being sober minded is the thing that is necessary for us to remember to keep our sound mind in place so that we do not mix the holy and the profane. Another New Testament passage uh, that's a parallel to our Torah portion this week is 2 Corinthians chapter 6 starting at verse 14 which again talks about um, which talks about again not mixing things, not mixing the things of the Lord with anything that is of the world and talking about how we must learn to not be unequally yoked with our fellow brethren. So verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 6, it says this, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement... "...has the temple of God with idols. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness." Of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Once again, more words of instruction for us when we become believers and we're called to a certain task or a certain role. For us to carry ourselves in a way that is that we're held to a higher standard. That as believers, you're, we're held to a higher standard because we've been consecrated and separated from the from the world. The Lord has called us to, to do that. Do not touch what is unclean. Do not now make yourselves unclean by anything you might do or see or touch or anything that you might do. Now, this is the preamble and the preface to all the other instructions that are going to come from the book of Leviticus from here on out. As our passage continues, um, as we're in Leviticus chapter 10, it then goes into Leviticus 11 in our Torah portion for this week, which includes all of the kosher laws, which such begins the entire... um, the the. Entire study and symbolism and structure and teaching of what is clean and what is unclean. We start talking about what is clean and unclean for us to eat as food and what we are to consider as food, and it'll continue on going into the next several weeks as far as other things that are considered unclean for us to be holy as the Lord is holy. It actually makes sense to me that all of that instruction in the heart of the book of Leviticus is all tied directly to and, and comes immediately following what happened to Nadab and Abihu. Because this would have been a shock amongst the community. In fact, amongst all of the sons of Israel there sitting in the wilderness at the base of Mount Sinai. That It's like, what, what in the world is going on? We just built this tabernacle. We're about to have these priests. God give, has given us all this instruction on how to worship Him. And did you hear what happened to Aaron's sons? What in the world is going on here? How do... It's all like, if that happened to Aaron's sons, uh, surely that would happen to me if I'm going to go and bring an offering before the Lord. How do I ensure that I don't be struck dead you know, by the Lord because all of us might have something unclean in our hearts? Well, all the instruction in Leviticus continues on. Be clean, be holy, be sober-minded, carry yourself in this way so as to not be counted amongst the dead. So as to not be uh, struck dead or bring something that is unclean, imp- uh, impure, inappropriate to bring before the Lord because there is no fellowship between the Lord and that which is unclean, between light and darkness, between that which is holy and that which is profane. There is no fellowship. So you might think that all of this suddenly becomes a a major uh, uh, a divide, a boundary or a barrier between who God has called and the rest of the world. And some might actually could conclude, especially after reading this New Testament passage, and you might say, all right, so if you become a believer, then that means we must Uh, disown, uh, disavow any knowledge or relationship or connection that we have with any of our fellow unbelievers, even if they're family, if there's anything, if if we were taking this instruction and these words to the nth degree, then would there ever be any interaction from believers to go and preach the gospel to unbelievers and to bring new people into the faith? If you took that to the nth degree, you would see that there would be no outreach of the body of believers to grow the kingdom, to make new believers, to share the blessings and the word of God to other believers. Is that truly what God wants? Well, that's actually, I mean, if I say that or I'm asking that question, in your spirit, you should probably be saying, you're like, no, that's that's not what, what God wants. It's not that God doesn't want to grow His kingdom or that He doesn't want us to minister to the nations and that for other people to come into faith, into Him, His Word, His instruction, following Torah, the commandments, the biblical holidays, having a testimony of Yeshua, the Messiah, that it's like that our goal is to just, then where in the world would any new believers come from if there was not that witness? Your spirit should be screaming at you and say, no, 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 that's not right. That's not the way God wants it to be. So what's being spoken of here is a word of warning, going back to what happened to Nadab and Abihu, that you are to carry yourself in a holy and appropriate way. But that does not mean that we declare unclean many different people and groups and that we marginalize certain people, and uh, that unbelievers, that we are to not have anything to do with them whatsoever. That is not what God has a desire to do. In fact, if we go now to Acts chapter 10, Another parallel to this Torah portion, we will learn something, something different, something very specific that we need to learn and understand when it comes to our fellowship with those that are on the path of becoming believers. Here in Acts chapter 10, many people are very familiar familiar with this passage. Very familiar. Now, the reason why they're familiar with this passage is not, at its heart, the reason for this teaching, these words, this story, and this instruction. The reason why this passage is so popular is because it has specifically to do with those kosher laws that I brought up. In our Torah portion, like I said, we have the list in Leviticus 11 about what is clean and pure, what is considered food, what is it that it is okay for us to eat as far as what is considered clean before the Lord so that we might be holy, so that we might make our, not make ourselves unclean, and that we would abstain from things that God calls abominations and things that God considers unholy. And it's the definition of what is food and what is not food is what comes from Leviticus 11. God uses this example in a vision that He gives to Peter, but, it's not, but the entire story, though, is not about food. It's not about what we can eat or can't eat, Though many of our New Testament, New Covenant brethren have made it about that when that is purely not the case. Reading here at Acts chapter 10, let's go ahead and begin at verse 1. There's a certain man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion, what was called the Italian Regiment a devout man and one who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner. "...whose house is by the sea, and he will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants, a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. And when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near to the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And then he became very hungry and wanted to eat." But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open up, and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descended to him and let down to the earth. And in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him and said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time and said, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what the vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter... "'thought about the vision. "'The Spirit said to him, "'Behold, three men are seeking you. "'Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, "'doubting nothing, for I have sent them.' "'Then Peter went down to the men "'who had been sent to him from Cornelius "'and said, "'Yes, I am he whom you seek. "'For what reason have you come?' "'And they said, Cornelius the centurion, "'a just man who fears God.' and has a good reputation among all the nations of the Jews was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you then he invited them in and lodged them the next day peter went away with them and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him what comes and follows is this is that cornelius meets peter and peter comes into his house and he teaches them all the ways of the lord and teaches them of the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. And this is when Cornelius, who is considered to be the first Gentile convert of believers of the Messiah. That him being a just man, but he was a Gentile. He was a Roman centurion. He, was, he, he wasn't a Jew. He wasn't naturally born but the testimony of Cornelius is that which is great. I mean, if anybody, Jew or not, could have the same testimony of Cornelius according to the Scripture, then I think anybody would probably take that when it comes to how the Lord would see and view you. And this whole idea of Peter going in and, and talking and fellowshipping in the house of a Gentile to minister to him to make him a believer and a follower of Christ. Now this was a big to do. This was a big thing because uh, what happens later is other apostles come and question what Peter was doing and wh- how how he could uh, uh, how how could this be, to 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 go in fellowship amongst Gentiles, who who would dare do such a thing, but of course the Lord is the one who had His hand on all of this. The Lord is the one who is who who sent messenger sent an angel to Cornelius to actually initiate this entire thing. The Lord has a hand on all of us. The Lord had to tell Peter that it's like, go with these men. I have sent them. Rather than questioning the fact that why are these servants of a Roman centurion sending for me? You start to get worried if something like that happened. It's the same thing if police came to your door and said, hey, I'm looking for you. And it's like, uh, what's this about? (laughs) Unless the Lord laid on your heart this sense of peace of like, no, it's okay. It's okay. I've sent them. Go. And it's like the Lord is going to use this as an opportunity. Now, the whole thing with the vision is now that I've sort of described it that way, and when you tell the entirety of the story, does this story have anything to do with food? Does it have anything to do with the fact that God is making food that he once commanded to be unclean and not to be eaten? Suddenly, everybody can now eat this food? No, this was what Peter fell into a trance, and this is how God communicated to him. And he called everything that it was unclean. And it's like, I've never eaten those things. And then God, the, 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 the lesson of the vision is this. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. If it says God has cleansed something, then you are then not to then come say, it. it's all like, mm, no, that, that, that's not clean. Even though God called it clean, it, it's, it, we're, we're going to still say that it's unclean. You're not, allowed to, you're not allowed to touch it. It's like, but God called it clean. It's like, no, 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 we're, we're going we're to continue to separate ourselves from that. We, we, we hesitate whether that truly is clean. And of course, the lesson here in Acts is about Gentiles, Gentile believers who would come in to the faith that one might think it's all like, no, who, who the heck are they? I don't want them coming into the faith. And it's like, no, no if they're coming through the doors into your community to hear the word and the testimony and the instruction of God, you're not to send them away because of what their background is or what their history is or what their heritage is or what they look like. Because what God has called clean, what God has brought into the community, we are to teach, help, instruct, let them join in into the community because God is doing the cleansing. God is doing this work. When God has stirred in their heart, then you're then you're to recognize that in your spirit and not reject it, calling it unclean. Once again, not about food. Turn with me now for our last passage for um, this Torah portion here to Mark chapter seven. Here we have the um, one of those uh, disputes between uh, the Pharisees and uh, and the Messiah. That's talking about how the the Pharisees, they had all of these rules and all of these things about when one came to eat. And specifically, this entire story has to do with the fact of eating with unwashed hands. Eating food with unwashed hands. And so let me uh, read here. Um, Then the Pharisees came, uh, uh, verse 1, chapter 7 of Mark. Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him. "'Having come from Jerusalem, now when they saw some of His disciples eating bread with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things in which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches.' And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold to the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. And Messiah continued, and he said to him, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. Let me uh, skip ahead here down to verse 17 as this continues on and continues uh, talking. In fact, actually, let me go to verse 14 and say this. When he had called all the multitudes to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man on the outside that can defile him. But the things that come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods." And he said, what comes out of a man that defiles a man? For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, the evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Once again, you might this all got started because the disciples were sitting down to eat some bread. Bread which is considered food, bread which is not considered unclean. But the Pharisees had all of these rules about washing your hands before you ate the bread. So God said, bread, according to kosher laws, according to the Torah, bread is kosher to eat. It's clean. It's okay for you to eat. And the Pharisees came along and said, no, it's unclean for you to eat because you didn't wash your hands. Because we have these traditions of the elders that we follow all the time to wash our hands in a certain way. Then the bread is clean to eat. And the whole point that's being talked about here is about these rules of these procedures or this consideration that what God is calling clean, you are calling unclean. Or that a a fellow believer, a fellow Jew who's walking in to just sit down to eat a piece of bread, that you're declaring him unclean. And Yeshua, I mean, he stops his deadness tracks and he just says, look, you guys are following the traditions of men, calling it the commandments of God, and you are a hypocrite for doing so. He didn't pull any punches on this one. He didn't try to teach them a a lesson or ask another question. He just straight up, he just says this things. He just just says, you guys are hypocrites for calling that a commandment of God. And once again, the the apostles were still trying to like figure this out, the disciples. And they were like, they were like, "What, what, what was all that all about? And the Messiah was like, uh, is like, do you not understand as well? Look, we're, we're talking about this, that it's like all of the spirit of someone, the lewdness, the, 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 um, the arrogance of teaching these traditions of men equal to the commandments of God and all of these evil things, evil thoughts, deceit, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all of these exist within somebody and that person is unclean because those things are coming out of them. We're no longer talking about food. And when he's talking about that, that, some people have taken that verse, verse 19 of Mark chapter 7, and said where it's all like, hey, this is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. That Did Yeshua purify all foods at this time? No, of course not. He was simply pointing out the fact that if you eat food, something that is considered kosher and clean, it can't be called food unless it is kosher and clean, like bread or kosher meat or something along those lines. When you eat it, the whole idea was that if your hands are somehow dirty, that it becomes unclean and you can't eat it. Except he points out, you eat it, it goes in your stomach, your stomach eliminates some of those things. These traditions of men were all tacked on, on top of it. And when it's like that, you know, look, if that was truly a commandment of God, then it would have been specified in Torah. But the men had made this and made these laws to lord over the people. So again, it's not about the food we're eating, but it's about where the source of uncleanliness comes from. It's not about the the condition of your hands when you're eating. Now, is it wise to have good hygiene and wash your hands before you eat something? We know that all too well in this country in the last couple of weeks. Of course it is, to wash your hands before you eat something so that you don't put something that is unclean put into your body. But again, the whole passages and all of these things about clean and unclean, we're not talking about food. We're talking about people. And what kind of uncleanliness is truly in their heart? See, because that's what we're going back now, wrapping it all up here. There was obviously some sort of heart or spirit issue inside Nadab and Abihu. There was clearly a heart issue or a greed issue inside Ananias and Sapphira. And in the Pharisees that are arguing here in Mark chapter 7, there's clearly a heart issue and a pride and an arrogance to control the people and to say what is the commandments of God when it is their traditions that they have used to replace and cover over and make more important than the commandments of God. That's what we're talking about when it comes to uncleanliness. Is what is in one's heart, what is in one's spirit, and it is what comes out of a person, such as their words, such as their thoughts, such as their emotions, that truly makes somebody unclean. The subject's no longer about food. Leviticus 11 covers it for us: what's clean, what's not clean. And you can go to all the science, you can go to all the health sciences, and, and, and look at you know what all of those things that you shouldn't be eating. Yeah, there's serious health complications if you eat things that are considered unclean. It's better for you to follow the kosher list that God prescribed and that you'll be better for it when God is trying to give us the instruction of what type of food is good for this earth suit that God created and how you're going to live. You get to operate this earth suit. God's telling you what kind of fuel to put in your body. Food thing's already been covered. What we now have in the issue of all the other people and all the other brethren as we get into the New Testament is what's in the hearts of the people. Who is following the Spirit of God? Who truly has a heart to love the Lord and to become a part of the community and to fellowship and find their their place amongst the community and the body of Messiah? You got to do a little bit of heart check. You got to dig in to what's going on on the inside and remove the leaven. Remove that which is unclean for you to be holy and walk uprightly before Him. That's what we're talking about here. So on all of these things, it's what comes out of someone that makes them unclean. It's no longer about, we're not talking about the food. As we continue on with the next couple of weeks of teachings, uh, we will see more and more of this this same topic, especially next week's portion about what one says, what comes out of a person that can really be the true source of sin rather than perhaps what is going on on the outside. So we'll dig into that uh, come next week. So for now, let us close out this Torah portion of Shemini uh, with prayer, and then we can get the rest of our Sabbath underway. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time, this teaching, and this instruction, Father. Father, I pray that you would cleanse your people, Lord. Clean out the unclean, remove the old leaven, Lord, from our hearts, whatever might have still been lingering or left over, even now that we're past the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Father. And I pray that you would purify the hearts and the spirit of the people. Father, may we not have any uncleanliness inside of us. May we not have any deceit or pride or foolishness, Lord, to put you to the test in any way, shape, or form to somehow think we have arrived, Lord. But, Father, that you would make us clean and pure, humble us, Lord, cause us to die unto ourselves, remove that uncleanness from our hearts and our spirits, Father, so that we can walk uprightly before you, following your word and your commandments, your instructions, Lord, as you have prescribed them to be and to follow to be followed. We love you and we thank you for all the blessings that you give to us. We thank you for this time and this teaching and this instruction on this Sabbath day. We give you all the honor, glory, and praise in this place. It's in your Son, Yeshua, that we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. ביחנוךה ייסארו נא
3: פנ Lacha בילךה
2: Bashem Mashiach, Sarha Shalom, Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, Shalom.